0: This is episode 55 of the Rebel Matters podcast and the first episode in a few weeks because I've been up and down the country recording chats with people as well as being busy with a few of the other projects that I'm involved in at the minute including bringing the Palestine Community Gym Project onto the next level working on the business side of things with Ackley and I've also been at a few of the kneecap gigs because they are currently on the road i was up at their gig in the academy last thursday night in dublin which was an absolutely class night and as it happens they have a new track out called get your brits out uh today it's on youtube and it's going to be coming out on spotify soon so go and check that out if you want to today's episode of the podcast Was actually scheduled to be coming out in a few weeks. It's a chat that I recorded last week with Calvin James Sweeney up in Dublin. Calvin and his brother Andy set up the Scoop Foundation, which is an organization that kind of just does good stuff for people all around the world. And one of the projects the Scoop Foundation have is called serious vibes and i think i've mentioned this on the podcast before because i was over at their christmas party in london last year which was the first time that myself and calvin uh, got chatting and i've been wanting to do a podcast with them ever since because the stuff that they're doing is uh, really worthwhile and very positive and calvin's been over and back from syria 18 times so it was great to sit down and get to chat with him up in dublin while i was up there uh going to the kneecap gig last week and the reason that i've brought this podcast episode forward is because syria is currently under attack um by turkey and i'm no expert in the um ins and outs of the political situation in Syria which is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to Calvin in the first place but from my basic understanding of things what's after happening is that the Kurdish fighters in northern Syria have been fighting against ISIS uh, with the backing of the American military uh, soldiers on the ground and in the air as well And just this week, uh, Donald Trump made some kind of sordid deal with the Turkish Prime Minister that basically threw the American uh, alliance with the Kurdish fighters in Syria into the bin and gave Turkey a free reign to invade Syria and attack the Kurdish fighters that the Americans have been fighting with to defeat ISIS. And... It's uh, clear that they've kind of been thrown under the bus and I don't know what the ins and outs of the deal is that America have made with Turkey but I'm sure it's got something to do with greed or some sort of economic um, advancement on the uh, part of America and Turkey. But essentially what's happening at the minute is that uh, the Turks are bombing and attacking the absolute living shit out of Syria and they've been left to fend for themselves and a lot of innocent people are are dying from it and are going to die from it and I thought that it was important to bring this episode forward just to bring a little bit more awareness to this whole situation and also to give people the opportunity to try and uh, speak out about what's happening here because regardless of uh, your understanding and how deep the understanding of the sort of world politics and things that are going on in Syria and that part of the world is, it's um, a tragedy that innocent people are going to be killed and that people who've been trying to form some shape of a life for themselves in the midst of an ongoing conflict uh, are just uh, thrown into the fire again just because of some deal that Donald Trump has decided to make with the Turkish Prime Minister. So uh, I think that the chat here with Calvin will do a lot more to explain what kind of work that the Scoop Foundation do and that the Syrias 5 project is involved in, what kind of work that he's been doing and what the situation on the ground is like out there and... Uh, it also gives you a place to go to find out more about what's happening out there. You can go to the Scoop Foundation's website, which is scoopfoundation.org. They're on Facebook under Scoop Foundation. And you can also follow Calvin and the Serious Vibes project on Instagram. It's at Serious Vibes. S-Y-R-I-S-V-I-B-E-S. And... To be honest, it's pretty depressing putting this uh, podcast episode out because um, you know it's all very well for us sitting over here, sitting over here, listening to podcasts and um, being at quite a bit of a distance away from the absolute nightmare and living hell that's happening for people right now at this very moment in time. And yeah, uh, but at least. There are people out there who are uh, bringing awareness to the situation and there are things that that we can all do. The Scoop Foundation have set up a fundraiser uh, for the Syrian Kurds and the link to that can be got on the Scoop Foundation uh, website and also the Scoop Foundation uh, Facebook page. They've got a target of €10,000. There's €8,621 donated as I am recording this. So go over there and give a wee donation and do something positive to help this absolute disaster of a situation. Before we get stuck into the chat with Calvin, I just want to make you aware that I will be doing a live podcast as part of the Cork Podcast Festival. It's the first time that this festival has been happening and I'm going to be doing a live podcast on the 13th of October, which is Sunday at half past two in the Spalbean Fannock, And that's a free event. There's actually loads of free events as part of this podcast festival. And you can go to the Cork Podcast Festival.com. I think that the website is... Let me just check it here. Cork... Cork Podcast Go there, and there is a massive lineup. Like some of the bigger podcasts that are going to be a part of this festival are the West Cork Podcast, the Blind Boy Podcast, the Alison Spittle Show, County Vinyl are doing one in the Kino Ask Audrey, those conspiracy guys, loads more. Uh, Mother of God, Just Me. Claire Sands and Junior Brother are doing a podcast uh, with the Irish Music Industry Podcast in the Kino as well. I'm definitely going to be going to that one there, and uh, Naylor Nain is going to be there. The Critter Shed and uh, Mother Folklore is in the Spalbin Fanac as well, and I'm going to be there at half past two in the Spalbin Fanak. Um, and my guest on that show is going to be uh, Jennifer Higgins, who has set up the a uh, women's yoga and circus hub in gaza so we're going to have a lot of common ground to talk about there and get the chats on the go about palestine and uh, hear more about her project and hopefully like we'll be able to compare some notes on our separate projects that we have on the go over in palestine so check all that out and come along And just as a final little thing before we get stuck into the chat with Calvin, thanks a million to everyone who's been supporting the podcast on Patreon. If you want to do that yourself, then you can go to patreon.com and find the Rebel Matters podcast, or you can just go to rebelmatters.ie and the link is there where you can become a monthly patron to the Rebel Matters podcast and help cover the cost of the production of these wee episodes. And also thanks a million to everybody who's been messaging into the uh, Instagram page, which is the main sort of social media that I'm using for the Rebel Matters podcast. Uh, A few people have been messaging in to find out when the next episode is going to be coming out. And this is it. There's going to be an episode for the next three or four weeks for sure also. I want to try and keep the weekly podcasts on the go. It just becomes a little bit of a time pressure to uh, make sure that I get one out every single week when the other projects that we're involved in uh, kind of become really time-demanding. But I've got a good few episodes in hand at the minute, so there should be an episode coming out every week for the foreseeable. Anyway, and thanks a million to everyone who's been listening. So... Let's get stuck into this chat with um, Calvin. And as usual, as I've been doing for the last few episodes, there is, after the outro music at the end of the episode, a little bit of uh, bedtime story time. Uh, I'm going to be reading another part of that Roald Dahl's Boyhood Stories book. So tune in, uh, stay tuned in after the outro music is on and if you want to listen to that and then you can just sit back and chill out for a few minutes while I read you a bit of a Roald Dahl book. Uh, but let's get stuck into this chat with uh, Calvin, James Sweeney. Tell me so much about Serious Vibes and where I came from.
1: Uh, well, Serious Vibes is a campaign of the School Foundation, which is a charity my brother set up 10 years ago. Um And I had always been part-time with the school because I was in the social care background myself and... Yeah, just when the war happened in Syria because I've been to Syria and Iraq before and i had been to the territories where the Islamic State hit hardest, you know. So um kind of stuck in my craw and you know I couldn't sleep and I think of what happened to the people over there. So yeah, I guess I had a bit of a quarter life crisis as well. I wasn't happy in my life. I wasn't happy in my work. Um you know, social care is a very it's very difficult to to achieve success and get results, you know, like out of every child you're working with, you know, the success rate of you know getting them into the world, the real world, with the tools that they need and the support that they need, it's it's very, it's very difficult. It's very bleak, you know. So um, yeah, I just got completely burnt out working there. So uh, I just needed something very new in my life. So uh, yeah, I just decided fuck this. I'm going out this area. Uh, why? Why did you decide to go there? Yeah. Well, just. Um, just couldn't sleep at night thinking, you know, I met some great people when I was out there, you know, because a lot of people, when they think Syria, Iraq, you know, they immediately think this dodgy desert, you know. But uh, no, I, I had really, really good times out there. Uh, people are great. And, yeah, I just couldn't, you know, sleep at night thinking what these people were going through. So, uh, so yeah, I got, in, I got in touch with a Kurdish militia called the YPG, and they were taking in Western fighters at the time. Um, you know lads ex-military lads anarchists from all over the world so i got in touch on facebook and yeah just said look i've i come from a health background and uh i've 10 years experience i can drive uh, i can i can administer drugs you know um so what do you reckon so the guys are like yeah stall so uh get a one-way flight to the city in iraq call this number when you get here and we'll look after you so yeah that's
0: what i did and one of the questions I was going to ask you was about the something you just touched on a second ago about the kind of preconceptions that people have about Syria yeah. and Iraq. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, like, where does that preconception come from and how did you end up with it, a different point of view? Um, well, I don't know, you know, because like the, the wars are
1: happening in these places. So I think, I guess it's like the word anarchy. When You, you know, a lot of people, when the word, when they hear the word anarchy, they think of, you know, people with, balaclavas on chucking petrol bombs at government buildings and, you know, but anarchy's not like that at all, you know. So yeah, I think it's just media, you know, fear mongering, you know, because I think, you know, in the Middle East, the people that are causing most problems for the Middle East and from the Middle East would be, you know, the Emirati, Saudi Arabia, these countries, you know, that we should be looking at, not Yemen, Iraq and Syria, you know, these countries they are like victim countries. So... So, yeah, I don't know, you know, why people would think that, you know. But uh, but no, they're, they're really
0: great people, very welcoming people. and uh, yeah. See, as far as you can understand it or, like, based on your own understanding, is it possible to break down the political situation in Syria? Um, it's very difficult because uh, I was there for seven
1: months in, in 2016. And again, it was very hard for us to follow what was going on on the ground, you know. Like, I was in Aleppo county so if you could imagine aleppo city would have been like dublin city i would have been in the port marnock end of it you know and still we didn't have a clue what was going on in aleppo and i remember there was uh, an airstrike assault by the the government on the kurds in a town called hasake and i was lucky because i was in hasake the day before we were transporting prisoners from the front and uh, all the acute uh, cases had to go there so um we were back in the city Kamishlo, which is about an hour away from hasake And on the news, we were just watching, um, you know, um, Syrian jets pummeling hasake And it was the first time the regime had attacked the Kurds uh, with airstrikes. And um, we had to keep swa- swapping over from the Kurdish news channel to the regime news channel to figure out what's going on so the regime was like we're pummeling them we're going to win and the Kurds are like we're fighting defiantly you know and at the end of it you know the Kurds came out on top but um, yeah we were just sitting there just flicking through all the news channels trying to wrap our own heads around it and you know radioing our guys on the ground to see what was going on so yeah you know even the people there having to praise what's going on yeah you're trying
0: to filter out the propaganda from the actual facts on the ground as well yeah so you land over there, and in, in a way, like the, like what are, what are, the, what are the, the, the different sides in that conflict at the minute? Well, you know, during the Arab
1: Spring, it was the, the working class Sunnis tried to rise up against the Assad regime, but they didn't have the manpower or the numbers or the weapons to do the job. You know, so uh, they kind of went for it and didn't have a plan B. So then they started recruiting uh, different militias, different jihadi groups to get the numbers and they've kind of taken it over now. So, yeah, it's and then you've got the Kurds up in the north, but they were focusing mainly on the, the war with the Islamic State. So, yeah, with the with the rebels, I don't know, I think there's probably about 80 different factions tied to the rebels. Then you have the the regime who are backed by Iran and Russia and um yeah, and the Kurds, so it's yeah.
0: It's complicated. Like, isn't yeah, it and I like, yeah. see the way we've been involved in like helping the um establish some some things over in Palestine over the last number of years. Like I think that one of the things that made it so easy for me to connect with that that kind of political situation over there was that it even though any like political war like that is complicated, mm-hmm. but at the same time it's kind of like you go back to 1948 and Israel didn't exist and they started taking over land and then yeah. now they're displacing Palestinians and yeah. it's quite like not easy to explain but you can see a fairly straightforward timeline of how things happen and yeah. which side is like uh, uh, being uh, oppressed and which side is the oppressor yeah. Yeah. in that way but any time I've tried to kind of get my head around what's happening in Syria seems um, maybe it's because I'm not able to filter the propaganda from What's actually happening, which is why one of the reasons I was so interested to be doing this podcast with you. But like, so Syria was sitting there as a country, governing itself at some stage, and then the shit absolutely hit the fan. Like, is it, is well, that
1: there's, there's loads of different. Uh, I don't know. Like uh, a lot of people are saying that it's to do with a pipeline that Qatar was it Qatar wanted to put through Iraq and Syria to Europe, and Assad wasn't having any of it, so that's another uh, thing preconception that people think that that's why the war started um and then again turkey um i think they were against assad or they're they're against assad at the moment um like they're funding most of the the jihadi groups in northern syria but then i think they've they're trying to change their tune now because the kurds control 30% of the state and um since the the ypg and the Syrian Democratic Forces are, you could say that they're aligned. They're not like the same entity, but they they have the same ideology. You know, they're, they're, they're both following the teachings of you know Abdullah Öcalan, Murray Bookchin, and um, this scares the shit out of Turkey. You know, so the, they don't want to see what the PKK in Turkey are trying to achieve. They don't want to see this being achieved in Syria and working out in Syria. So, um, yeah, right now, Turkey want to create a buffer zone along the, the whole length of the border, 30 kilometers deep into Syria. And um, America, who were aligned with the Kurds pretty much up until the end of the ISIS wars. Like it was gas because when I was there, Obama was uh, running the show and everyone would call him Havala's comrade, you know. So um, he was called Havala. Amongst Obama. the YPG, Yeah, amongst all the Kurds yeah. uh, up, up in the northern Syria. And, you know... History repeats itself. You know, the Kurds have been flung under the bus every opportunity that America has uh, been involved with them. So I, I was telling them, you know, you should not put too much fight in this lad, you know. And then Trump took over and he became Haval Trump. And yeah, I was the only one who wasn't optimistic about this relationship lasting. And uh, yeah, you know, um, Trump said that he was going to withdraw all the troops, even though the iraqi governments and the syrian governments don't have the capacity to contain jihadism in in these uh, states so um yeah so now america is kind of siding with her Tur- and it's bonkers that america is siding with turkey because it's been proven that turkey have been supporting isis they've been trading with isis uh, it's a safe haven for isis all Islamic state fighters who ended up in syria have been stamped in and out of turkey so it's just bonkers that America is now aligning with Turkey and supporting the idea of this buffer zone and in northern Syria um all the major cities are right on the border so Kamishlo which is the largest uh, city in the north right on the border Kobani which is extremely important to the to the Kurds that's right on the border as well so yeah we we don't know how this is going to pan out but and then Erdogan in Turkey he's just threatening like
0: full-on invasion every day is know. it a case that the america have sided with turkey and they're putting their sort of economic interests ahead of actually yeah
1: right? yeah it's, it's 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 economics it's geography um and again with uh, like russia has always been an ally of syria and you know when the war happened they were the first to step in support assad regardless of what he was up to and iraq um you know america have you know, they're not particularly in Iraq anymore. They have a few bases there, but they're not too active. So Russia have shown themselves that, you know, they can be an ally in the Middle East because it's always been America. But now Russia have stuck their hat in the ring and they're proving that, you know, they're a useful ally. To to the Syrian regime? Yeah, and yeah. even Turkey. Um, there was a missile defense system um, that America were threatening to cut sanctions with Turkey if uh, Turkey bought this... Uh, missile defense system because this missile defense system it has to be operated by russians so you know there'd be a russian presence in turkey so um yeah russia just gave them the two fingers and went ahead with it so then they got banned from like they were to buy these i don't know if it's f-35s but like the best warplane in the world so then they've been banned from buying those because they bought this defense system and uh yeah, it's just mad. It's just Turkey just blatantly doing what it wants. And like when I was living in Kamislo, there was an assault on a city called New Sabin. Um, it was after the destruction of the city called Ciziri, where Turkey just, you know, killing civilians. There was um, like a basement full of women and children that they knew women and children were there and just they just torched it. And this is well known through the region that Turkey, Europe to this kind of thing. And I was with a journalist from Russia Today who wanted to cover the war, but it was safer for him to go to Syria and film over the fence than to actually be in Turkey. And we were watching chemical bombs being dropped in civilian neighborhoods, you know, phosphorus bombs. With your
0: eyes, like, watching them? Yeah, yeah,
1: we were watching it. And uh, I have videos and everything, like, of, you know, chemical weapons being dropped on Turkish civilians by their own government. And I'd always be checking the news and uh, there'd, there'd be nothing about it at all
0: you know so so when you land out there what was the what happened, then the first time you got out there what was the number well, of events then I I had to be taken to a safe house
1: and in this house there was loads of different westerners who were going over to fight and then we had to go to a guerrilla camp up in the mountains and then um, we had to wait there and the lads were kind of crossing the border two at a time so I had to wait there about a month and uh, I enjoyed being in this camp. You know, there was no telly or nothing. You know, and they took all your phones and laptops off you. So yeah, it was it was really basic. You know, um, living in a bunker made of sandbags, and you know, just eating whatever grows around the place. And you know, it was actually the happiest time of my life uh, <laughs> that month in the camp. But then I had to come home for a for a personal reason, and then um, when I headed back out to go over. Um, we were driven to the border and we were dressed up as uh, Iraqi Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers. And then uh, we were driven through about 17 checkpoints on the front and we were dropped off in a barn and, yeah, two guys are like,
0: welcome to Syria. Uh, What year was this? This is 2016. And how long were you there for then? Seven months. And after that then, what, what did you do?
1: Well, um... Yeah, so we were uh, fundraising for, for the guys out there. and It was very, very difficult. I think in the first five months I was there, we raised about 6,000 quid. Um, and it was very difficult to get money there because of the international banking sanctions on the, on the country. So uh, I was telling the lads, I'm like, look, I raised this money. Like, how do I get it in? So they're like, do you have any friends in Germany or England? And I was like, yeah, I have a few friends in Germany, in Berlin. And they're like, right, just wire them the money. And wait for our instructions so um found a mate sent the money to him and it was like right you have to go to this kebab shop and uh, meet this lad Abdul or whatever so uh, he went in sat down the guy sat down with him my mate didn't speak German your man didn't speak English and they were just winking and you know brown envelope under the table and then we got a phone call that night to drive to a house up in the mountains uh, which was your man's uncle so we drove up to your man's gaff and he was like, six grand yet? So he ended up just counting it out in Syrian pounds, you know? And uh, yeah, it was like a bin liner full of cash and that's how you kind of got money, you know? But then uh, when the Ireland Dachneesh image surfaced, remember the boy in the back of the ambulance? Um, yeah, we got a massive surge in funding, even though we were nowhere near that situation, but uh, people in Ireland were just like, Jesus, how can we help these people? And yeah, our campaign was kind of live enough At this stage. So, uh, yeah, in one day we made 30 grand. You know, After that image came out? Yeah, on that day. Uh, Was that like through online funding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people just started, you know, flinging loads of money our way. So so then we're like, right, look, we can't fucking do this kebab shop, strap it to a donkey, push it over the border thing, you know, this is proper now, you know. So, yeah, we found an Italian NGO who were working in the same region and uh, we started bringing money in through there. So we bought the... Kurdish Red Crescent and ambulance with the money and then we were funding their rescue service it was kind of like a White Helmets kind of thing but uh, up in the north and then when I was in Kobani once we were working on the Manbij front line and I met a Swedish Kurdish doctor who was coming in from Iraqi Kurdistan with supplies and she was mental like she wanted to drive these supplies into Manbij which was still half occupied by the Islamic State she asked me to go with her So, yeah, it was a pretty hairy uh, mission to go on. But, um, yeah, I really dig this woman's mission and her attitude. So she is like, look, if you're ever in Iraqi Kurdistan, like swing by our clinic, we're in this camp. So uh, I tried to get into Syria once, and it's very touch and go. You don't always get in because you're entering illegally all the time. So um, I had a failed attempt, so I decided I'd swing by our camp. And it's a camp with 11,000 Yazidis. It's a Yazidi-specific camp and yeah they they run the only health clinic in in this camp and yeah i was like right well um i'm going to see if we can raise money for you and yeah we started doing that and then we started noticing gaps in like where the big ngos were missing out on you know so like the education is very poor there's very little social activities for young people or adults even um and then again, like the Yazidi, if you're not aware of who they are, like they, they're they an ethno-religious minority from Sinjar. There's about a million of them. And the Islamic State view them as devil worshippers. So when they started rolling across Iraq, they hit the Yazidi the hardest. So they stormed Sinjar, killed 5,000 men and boys, kidnapped 7,000 women and children, 3,000 of which are still missing today. And um, as the war raged on... Um, these girls and children were coming back to the camps, you know, they were getting liberated or they were escaping or their families were negotiating ransoms. Um, and when they were coming back, you know, they were reunited with what was left of their family. And then it's like, right, there you go. Here's your tent. Here's your food stamps. And good luck to you. You know, so no one was addressing their psychological needs. There was no therapy or anything like that. So we started a therapy program there and we have 55, Women and children in it at the moment, and then with the kids, you know, they're doing feck all like, well, like most kids, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, th- th- there's no real programs in place for them. So, we started an art program last November, and uh, yeah, like you can see that that's some of the work there behind you. And um, we're going to be touring, is that from over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, some of these kids have never drawn in their lives, you know. And um, I took street artists from Dublin, Shane Sutton, over. And the guy's just a machine and he's amazing because like, he he teaches or he's taught prisoners and different uh, groups here. And he's a filmmaker, classical oil painter, toy designer. Like the guy's just perfect. He's an all-rounder. So uh yeah, the kids really engaged well with him. And, you know, we're asking the kids, what do they want to do? What do they want to learn? And IT was, uh, was uh, one of the big answers there because uh the educational system in iraq it's very academic it's not very practical so you can go from like play school to a master's without ever opening a laptop you know so uh just after halloween myself and shane are heading over with the the macbooks there that we got from dropbox and yeah i'm going to start an it program teach them designing basic skills coding stuff like that
0: so is it fair to say that like if you're still trying to like figure out in my head a little bit but the all the the groups that you you guys have been working with in essence are either like suffering at the hands of the Islamic State or fighting against them yeah yeah and then again like these these groups don't tend to get on you know because
1: like people think that when they think of Kurdistan that you know the Kurds deserve their own country which you know I, I think they do but they're so split that uh, it's, I, I don't know how it would work, you know. So you have um, the the Ocalan Kurds, as you'd call them. Um, so they would be the southern Turkish Kurds and the northern Syria Kurds. Uh, so, yeah, the PKK and the YPG. And, um, you know, they're very militant, very staunch, you know, the cause is everything. And then on the other side, you have what I would call the Barzani Kurds um who are most of the iraqi kurds you know so iraqi kurdistan they have a big trade deal with turkey being its closest neighbor whereas the other two hate the turks and basically the these two kurds hate each other you know and we're actually one of the few organizations who are working with both you know like we try not to dip into the politics of it at all but you know they'd be kind of like why are you helping these guys and why are you helping those guys, and you have to kind of watch what you say around one group, and the same with the other, you know. So, like, yeah. you have—I um, told you, Haval meant comrade, and Kaka means friend, you know. So, you couldn't openly walk around Iraqi Kurdistan calling people Haval, you know, because they're like, hmm. and then you know, if you go into northern Syria and start calling people Kaka, they're like,
0: hmm. you know, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 very. Strange, They're all kind of collectively suffering at the hands of the entity that's known as Islamic yeah, State. Yeah, anyway, well, they like both, it, they both yeah. fought them.
1: They both fought the Islamic State. but um, And again, with, with the Yazidis, it's a bit strange because, uh, yeah, this is a perfect example of how, how, how weird it is. Um, so the Iraqi Peshmerga were protecting Sinjar uh, in 2014, but then they heard the Islamic State were on their way And this is just after the Islamic State got their hands on all these American weapons and tanks. So it was decided that they would pull out without letting anyone know. So in the middle of the night, they just withdrew, practically just moonwalked out of Sinjar and didn't let anyone know. And then on August 14th at three in the morning, the Islamic State just started mortaring the city and just started pounding it. And then uh, there's a big mountain uh, called Mount Sinjar, which is very sacred to the Yazidis, so people were fleeing trying to get up this mountain away from the Islamic State and loads of people were starving to death up there. Um, you know, women having to abandon babies, you know, women having to kill their own babies because, you know, they, they weren't getting any food or water themselves and like after ten days, you know, they couldn't feed their babies and their babies were starving to death, so they were just putting their children out of their own misery. You know, and then it was the PKK, the Turkish Kurds who came down and opened the corridor to northern Syria and practically saved all the Yazidis from Sinjar mountain. So the Yazidis are kind of caught between these two groups, you know. And the PKK set up um a self-defense unit of Yazidis called YBS. So when you go to Sinjar, it's practically split up. There's different checkpoints. So you got uh Hashd al-Shabi which is um, an Iraqi militia backed by Iran and um, they control large parts of the town and um, the iraqi peshmerga did until last year ybs as well so um yeah you've got you know the Yazidis are now split between supporting the, the pkk ypg kurds and supporting the barzani kurds and again they don't like to talk about it you know yeah i'd be asking that the young people what do you think of this what do you think of that and they're just like just change the subject
0: you know? Yeah, actually I'm actually now getting a sense of see when people ask me about things to do with the history of the north of Ireland they're yeah. like right, what's this group here and I'm like okay right well, there was Sinn Féin and then provisional Sinn Féin set up and then there was official Sinn Féin and then the RSP s- split away from them There then it was the NLA and then uh, now yeah. I know what they feel like. Cause yeah, they, yeah. It, oh, like um, but, you know, uh, I guess just to go, to go down this like, little rabbit hole a little bit more, but Islamic State, well, like, is that one body or is it a collection of, of groups or like, what's the perception of what, ex- what it Again, actually is? Again, you know,
1: all the, the foil hat wearers would be like, oh, you know, it was the, the Mossad and the CIA formed it, but... Basically, what happened was um, when Saddam Hussein was overthrown, because uh, like a lot of people say, you know, America killed a million people uh, in that war. They didn't. Uh, the Iraqi people killed a million people in that war. So it was when um, Saddam was ousted, you know, the opposition came in and they got payback on everybody. So then you take the situation like in Abu Ghraib prison, um So a lot of Ba'athists ended up there, subjected to horrific conditions. So then you just had this melting pot of jihadists in this one prison, you know, that was overcrowded and everyone just started radicalizing each other. And then the Ba'athists that managed to escape, they went up to a place called Nineveh, which is a disputed area between the Iraqis and the Kurds. So the Iraqis weren't looking after it, the Kurds weren't looking after it. So this was a place where the Ba'athists could go and, you know, be left alone and start radicalizing people. And then people were coming out of Abu Ghraib prison. They were all going up to, to Nineveh. So then, yeah, they were all just getting radicalized and growing, 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 and then got their hands on money, weapons, and then went for it, you know. Is it, so that's
0: in, in my opinion, that's, you know, how it, how it went down. And is that, in a way, is it... Uh sort of counterforce to the amount of Western influence and the amount of Western kind of wars that have been brought to that side of the world? Has it come from that, in a way? Well, of course, you know. Like, uh, you see how, you know, people in Europe are afraid of
1: Muslims and hate Muslims because, you know, of the Paris attacks, the London attacks, you know, just these few nut jobs just ruining it for everybody. So, yeah, it works both ways.
0: Yeah. And um, when you were over there, how did you adjust the life? Because, like, one minute you're, like, here in Ireland and... Couple of weeks later, you're over there, and uh, well, right now I'm very
1: used to it. You know, people ask me, "Oh, how do you adjust?" And I just slot in, you know, because I've I've been over like 18 times now. Um, but yeah, th- there wasn't much of a cult- cultural shock, you know. Um, yeah, you hear the call to prayer a couple of times a day, um, but you know, you're able to drink over there. I didn't think you'd be able to, but like you go to Iraqi Kurdistan, there's Johnny Walker posters everywhere, and there's an off license every five doors. And yeah, you know, people like you know, most people just I, I heard this the other day. They want to earn, learn, and belong, and you know that's right across the globe. And yeah,
0: they're, they're no different to us. Whenever you came back the first time, was there a bit of an adjustment period? Or I mean, I even remember the first time I was out in Palestine, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't situated anywhere where there was know like active like conflict there mm. where people were um fighting against each other like physically at that time but I remember the, even the couple of weeks I spent there when I came back mm. and I was sitting down in Cork I thought right back on Saturday take Sunday off go back to work on Monday yeah and it just wasn't able to function for a few weeks because it was right. just it, everything had just settled in you I know mean, over there you're like going around to meet different people going from place to place just trying to take everything in but then when i got back and sitting I remember the minute that was sitting in a bedroom just sitting on an armchair and I, what the fuck guys like yeah. i all just start sinking in do you have that kind of an experience when you came back uh
1: yeah like so when i when i find it because it took me two months to get out because um i'd signed up for six months and then uh, it got really hairy and uh like i'd been declared missing because i was uh, out of the loop for two weeks so everyone thought i'd been kidnapped and then there was a massive suicide bombing in the city where I lived, and I was on RT news reporting from it, and my family got a little more watching it. So they are like, Jesus, get out of there, will you?" So I was like, right, I think I've done enough. I'm gonna try and get out of here. So I went back to the lads, and uh, my boss took me back to the the YPG lads who got me in. They're like, right, uh, your man wants to go home. And the dude's like, uh, when did you get here? And I was like, four months ago. I was like. Well, you've six months, don't you? I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "I'll see you in two months." Then I was like, "Fuck," you know. And then it just got fucking really hairy, out like mental hairy after that. So yeah, when I when I finally got home, um, I flew to Dusseldorf first, and I remember just getting off the plane and you know feeling that cool European air, and then I got outside and uh, I was waiting for a train to Berlin, and then I saw a woman in the burka walking by and i was so, so kind of like got a little bit nervous <laughs> i don't know it was, it was really really strange you know but then uh, yeah i just ended up going on a bit of a week-long bender in berlin then to barcelona then to london and then home but um you know since i came home i hit the ground running with the campaign and haven't really stopped so i didn't actually get a holiday into me until last year so i, I didn't have a holiday for about 30 months went to portugal for a week and uh yeah didn't know what to do with myself when I was when I was out there but no I you know yeah
0: you know I'm too too busy to think about it really yeah whenever things were getting hurry out there like what for for as much as you you're able to talk about it like what was the experience like that? um yeah it, it's weird you know cuz
1: um I remember not a lot happened in the first few months and then in April um there was still some regime Uh, troops based in Kamishlo city so they were in charge of the airport and in charge of government buildings so I think some Kurds drove through a regime checkpoint and they were like you have to stop and your man's like blow me so they opened up and just started shooting each other and then the whole city went tits up for three days so um, I'd never been in anything like that before and uh, so we were you know as first responders we were you know, responded to this. So we were, while everyone was tailing it that way, we were going towards it. And I remember just looking at lads, just firing rockets down the street and, you know, machine gun fire coming up our way and, you know, but being able to handle it, you know, and, you know, I remember after, when it ended after three days, uh, I went into my bedroom and there was three bunks. So there was my, my boss in the far corner and his bodyguard in the other corner. And the two of them are just watching you know the battle on their phones i was like jesus lads it's over come on so i remember just lying down in the bed in between them and they can just hear like coming off their phone so i was just like fuck you know so uh stuck on my headphones and i was like sure what do i listened to so i put on music in the streets by unlimited touch and i just lay there and i just started crying you know so yeah just when you're when you're under fire you know you don't have time to think about it or get worried but you know as soon as it's over and yeah, when peace was declared in the city, that's when you kind of sit back and go,
0: "Fuck." <laughs> Seeing all that kicked off, Eric. Like, yeah. What kind of are you wearing? Like a first responder gear, like a paramedics gear or something? When you're over there, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, you wouldn't be
1: wearing, gear? no, no, no. Like because Kevlar, uh, it's quite heavy. You know, so if you're wearing a two-plated vest, that'd be like carrying. <laughs> two four-year-olds <laughs> over your shoulders, you know. So, um, And since a lot of your job is
0: kind of lifting and humping, um, yeah, no, we wouldn't use any of that stuff. Oh, so you're kind of running into the field and like, treat people who've been wounded? Yeah. Yeah. And is that, was that your, before you went out there, did you have that no, connection? No, no, um, you know, I, I did.
1: Uh, <coughs> like, yeah, I used to work with uh, teenagers and uh, insecure care, but I've kind of flirted in and out of home care, um you know so people who are like bedridden with severe disabilities um and i worked with uh, in an old folks home as well so a lot of kind of patient handling which is very important out there you know because if you've got someone who's got an arm and a leg blown off you have to be able to lift them you know where it's not going to hurt them so that came in very handy and yeah I, i've you know i've been certified to administer drugs so yeah it's uh are there many Irish people out there No, there was one, a guy called Josh Malloy, Um, he was fighting over there, and he received a bit of uh, media attention because when you're leaving uh, Syria to go back into Iraq, because you get like a month's visa, and if you're six months in Syria, that means you've overstayed your visa in Iraq by five months, and you've got to get from one end of the Kurdish region to the other through dozens of checkpoints without someone actually flipping through your passport. And himself and two English lads got caught, so they were arrested and they were locked up for two or three weeks. So then you know the Irish media really picked up on that, and yeah, it was terrible because he'd been in the British army. Um, I think he grew up in England, so um, he joined the British army. So you know the the journal comments. I know it's the toilet bowl of
0: uh-huh, opinionally is, <laughs> but, uh,
1: you know the the absolute shit he was he was given a fucking traitor and all this, you know. The, Trader to to oh, you oh, well fuck him, let him rot over there, and all this, you know, it was really <laughs> bananas yeah. that people were reacting this way to, to him being over there. But no, he was a great guy, and he did uh, he did two tours over there. So when I was coming in, he was on his way out, and that's that's when he got caught, you know. But um, yeah, no, there's been a couple of other Irish lads out all fighting, and um, there's been no one, um, in a civilian or a medical capacity. So there was a guy from Cork, um. Uh-huh. And there was a dude who was in the Irish army who took uh, a career break <laughs> and went over. And uh, I think he was in trouble when he got back, you know. So, uh, so yeah, they, they were the only kind of Irish lads out Have there. you received
0: any negative attention for, for the work that you've been doing out there? Me? Yeah, uh, well, you
1: get the odd trolling, kind of, you know, what, what about the homeless and all that? And, you know, you're usually getting this off people who do nothing for nobody, you know. So, uh, yeah, I remember one guy who was just... He went on to my Instagram and then just every photo he was like, wanker, fucking meh, meh, meh. And I was like, well, what are you doing? I'd love to kind of help you and what you're doing for people. So, what are you doing? You know, tumbleweed, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you're always going to get the, the Gemma O'Darty fucking spanners, you know? Yeah.
0: Uh, so, what, what's, what's the crack at the minute? Like, what are you doing? What are you working on?
1: Well, yeah, we've got a lot of events coming up. Um, We have one tomorrow. It's our annual donor meeting. So anyone who's a regular donor, we kind of invite them. It's in third space in Smithfield. And, you know, a few drinks, a bit of food, kind of tell them what we've done the last 12 years, where we're at now, what we plan for the next 12 years, 12 months, sorry. And we have our 10th birthday in Lost Lane on October 26th. And then we're doing a gig in the well on the 23rd and then our christmas party in the big romance on the 20th of december and we're putting out an album as well so um because like we basically raise all our money through events so uh just putting on gigs art auctions and stuff so we've got um a double vinyl album that's being pressed by dublin vinyl uh with 16 tracks on it so it's like hip-hop electronic stuff folk music a bit of everything on it so um yeah so that's our fundraising for the next couple of months, and yeah, we're going to keep going with this art program, and this tech program is—it's kind of endless. We're kind of partnering up now with uh, DCU, and uh, with some people in Google, um yeah, just to deliver this kind of a self-learning, uh, remote teaching program. So yeah, that's, that's right
0: now. one thing. that was, I was at the Christmas party last year over in London, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one th- that was the first kind of like time that I've kind of like um, I came across what you guys were doing but one thing that struck me ever since then is that like a lot of the fundraising is based around like art basically isn't it like yeah, a, yeah and like uh, different forms of like paintings music yeah yeah you know like, like
1: we've had so many amazing artists you know like I remember we did a comedy gig uh Emmett Kerwin did his first uh first stint at stand up at it he was, he was pretty gas and then um we had foil arms and hog play to a room of about 40 people and that emic kerman um gig as well we had a uh, james vincent mcmorrow was the halftime show at it and um even in art um like we do auctions every year and uh, we're aiming to do one again next year and we've had you know um uh, jim fitzpatrick mazer connor harrington originals um yeah just the best ireland has to offer so um yeah, like, the arts community has been detrimental. To art. Yeah, they've been just
0: amazing for us. So, so obviously, like, people are, what you're doing and what Scoop is doing in serious vibes like, is resonating with people. Mm. and It seems like, even from talking to you now, like, what you're kind of, like, engaged in when you're here is to kind of join the dots for people to try and get them engaged in what you're doing yeah, and understand. Yeah. Like, so how, how, is that, how is that happening? Because it's, it is such a complex situation. Yeah, like, well, how do we, 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 we go to someone and say, right here we've got this event uh, i want you to support it like what is it in their head like i know for example that when we had the the gym jam last year to raise money for the um the gym in the west bank i think that what makes people can have a connection is was is the personal relationship that they had with myself and alex who were organizing it the yeah. fact that there's going to be a brick and mortar thing out there yeah. and they trust that the money's going straight into what what we yeah. say it's going to like what's the equivalent of that for for you guys
1: well, again, it's
0: just a matter of asking, you shall receive, you know. So, um,
1: yeah, we just get in touch with people and go, here, look, this is what we're doing. Do you want to help us? And,
0: um, yeah, the response has been overwhelming. And you've mentioned, like, Dropbox and Google. And how come you have just got them on side and in that? Is this kind of like a... Narrative? Yeah, we have friends in, yeah. in Google. So, um, and again, Google
1: have been great Um like they encourage their employees to, to volunteer and give their time and get into different causes. So Google will support their employees um, in that situation. So um, yeah, we've uh, we just have had a couple of friends in there who connected us with some other people. And yeah, you know, we just uh, have some really great people getting behind us. And yeah. um, with Dropbox, a friend of mine works there, just got in touch with to me saying, you know, I hear you're doing this, and um, do you need this and that? It's like, yes, you do. So, uh, yeah. Sometimes these things just fall in our laps and, yeah. And as I said, just ask. Like, yeah. Just
0: drop someone an email and you would be surprised. That's one thing that I've noticed over the last couple of years is that once people are asked and if they have, uh, they, you know, like a clear understanding mm-hmm. and as much as possible of what yeah. the thing is for that they're always willing to help. But was that an Irish yeah. thing or something that we can't connect with causes or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and
1: again you know people people get affected by you know the absolute state of the world and they want to help and they don't know how to help so you know you approach a painter and go well look we're doing this if you give us a painting we can do this with it and make this happen and
0: yeah when you're back here do you keep in touch with what's happening over there through like are you in contact with them over there the at yeah, all yeah 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 constantly yeah uh, or, or, like do you have like particular people that are over there that are kind of keeping track of like what's happening with their families and stuff? Is like, is that the way the communication goes? Or
1: um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But like, yeah, we, we've uh, we're
1: involved in a couple of different projects and a couple of different situations, and you know, with the situations out there, they kind of morph from you know one thing into the next. You know, like everyone thought, you know, once the Islamic State was finished with uh, territorially, and that you know it'll be sunshine and lollipops, but yeah. that's clearly not the case. You know, so once one thing is wrapped up some other bullshit happens and it just keeps morphing
0: yeah into uh, something else even a thing like even when the the heat of the battle has passed there's like the aftermath mm. of us left behind it yeah. seems to be a lot of the place where you guys are doing a lot of work with the kids with the yeah stuff and again
1: to. it's creating big problems for us because um, you know back in the height of the isis wars it was very black and white you know if you were in the green zone we, you, you were mostly grand. you know there'd be a, the odd car bomb the odd suicide bomb and stuff like that but now that the islamic state is dismantled these people have just blended back into society so they're everywhere
0: yeah
1: um so yeah you can't really like i was in a place called ez resort last year in syria which was the last isis stronghold and uh like uh the, the nurses, you know, when they were getting out of the, the ambulance, you know, pulling glocks out of their handbags and cocking them and they're like, don't fucking trust anybody here. Everyone here is ISIS, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty nuts to be And then I was like, yeah, can I go to the shop, you know, and one's like,
0: yeah,
1: the shop is just there, love, you know. Yeah. And then um, we were, we were trying to find our way back to Haseke, on the road to Haseke and we kind of got a bit lost. So we pulled over to these, to a garage and there was these two clean clean-shaven mechanics working on this car and we're like sorry bros do you know where um, the road to Hasaka is so your man's like yeah turn around here he's like see that second road there yeah take the second road and go down the very bottom of it and that'll bring you there so we're like yeah cool he's like second road not the first the second and we're like cool he's like second we're like yeah we got it so we started driving down, and your one's like, That was a bit shady, you know? So these two old boys are walking up. So we pulled over and we're like, Sorry, mate, is the second road here to Hassake? And they're like, No, that's the fucking ISIS fucking down there. Don't go down that road, you know? So these uh, lads just tried to shop us to ISIS, you know? Like, had we had not stopped, asked these old boys where we were going, like, We wouldn't be having this
0: conversation now, yeah. right? <laughs> head would be rolling. I What's the refugee situation like over there at the minute?
1: it's pretty bad uh like we're working with the Yazidis in Iraqi Kurdistan, so there's twenty four to twenty eight camps three hundred thousand displaced people, and in our camp there's eleven thousand they've been there five years, and it's pretty hopeless because they don't feel safe enough to go home. The young people don't want to go home. a lot of people don't want to go home because when they were attacked they were attacked by their neighbors, so they don't trust arabs um like it's gas like even the kids um we were watching Liverpool and uh, they they were like oh we don't like Mo Salah. It's like why not? And they're like he's an Arab. And I was like yeah but Manny's an Arab as well. He's like oh no he's different he's an African Muslim he's not an Arab like you know. So the kids like they just like there's been 74 genocides on the Yazidi people in their history and uh, all by Muslims you know. So um they don't want to go home. They don't want to stay in the camps. They want to go to Europe. Australia, Canada because they have to kind of stay where there's Yazidi communities because they're not able to marry in or marry out like they can't marry Muslims or Christians or Yeah. even there's like a four caste system in the Yazidis that you can't marry out of your caste you know so um, yeah they tend to stay in right. clusters whenever they, they uh, migrate
0: Are the camps kind of tent camps at the moment? Yeah, yeah. 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 So people live yeah. in tents for the last five years Five years, years sure. yeah. yeah
1: And you know yourself you know if you've got a body and soul <laughs> come Um, Monday morning you've had enough of it you know yeah yeah so the yeah it's pretty bleak Uh, the education system is pretty bleak kids only go to school for three hours a day um and in this camp like I remember the first time I went there was two or three off licenses in it now there's about 15 you know so um yeah alcoholism will be a big problem and again just like from what the the people have been through you know it's mental like the what happened to the Yazidi and uh Everyone's got a story. Everyone's been deeply affected by it. You've got people who's you know have lost their whole families. Uh, They don't know where their children are, their mothers are. You know, so um, yeah, it's it's it's
0: pretty. Who runs those camps? Like who's in charge Uh, of them? The UN, UN UN, UNHCR. Yeah. Yeah. So is is the plan for them as much as you can have a plan in that situation to be able to help people to go home again? Or is it there
1: well, they're it's trying possible. to put pressure on them, but um, I, I was supposed to visit Sinjar there because we were going to um, build a maternity clinic there. So we did a big fundraiser there. Um, the last art auction we did. And so we got permission to go there. And then the day before we went, <laughs> 10 suicide bombers rolled through the city. So four managed to detonate themselves. Three were killed. And then there's three still at large. So there's a sleeper cell alive and well in Sinjar at the moment, you know, so uh, our permission got revoked and there's been, you know, sporadic clashes not far from Sinjar. There's been abductions not far um, as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not safe for them to go home and, you know, they don't, yeah, they don't feel safe enough to go there. So like,
0: Has there been any period in time when you've been out there and, you're just like fuck. What am I doing here? Like I'm gonna die? Like what was I thinking? Um, yeah, but like you know, you put your 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 faith in in the
1: team around you. You know, these lads know what they're doing. They've been at it long enough. But uh, the closest I came to getting killed was actually at a funeral. <laughs> uh, so they they do mass funerals for the fighters. You know, so I think it was about eight guys having this funeral together. So uh, you know, all the the women, the wailers, you know, the criers, so they're all doing the. All this, and then uh, all the lads were just spraying AK 47s into the sky. So there was this young lad, he was about 18, you know, this boy PG lad, and he had it in one arm, you know. So he's like, Yeah, busy Kurdistan. And then he starts firing his gun, but his arm is getting lower and lower and lower. So he ends up like nearly putting one through my head. Like he put one that missed my head by about four inches, you know. So I managed to slap the gun out of his hand. I'm like, What the fuck are you doing? And he's like, Oh, sorry. I was like, You fucking four inches made from my fucking head you yeah, so, um, know shit yeah but then there was another time there was a car bomb um targeting a regime checkpoint and it was weird because we were the first people to respond to it because they have their own rescue team <coughs> but we were the closest one so um we were in this hospital but um i was a bit useless because it got really busy there was about 15 patients but then the whole fucking syrian army showed up and they were running around. There was blood everywhere. People are slipping all over the place. So I was like, "And like, I don't speak Arabic at all. You know, I have a bit of Kurdish, but no Arabic." So I'm like, "I'm I'm just a spare here. So I'll go out and have a fag." So I went out and had a smoke, and uh, there's about ten people outside, and two douche guns were set up. These are anti-aircraft guns that you strap onto the back of a Toyota pickup, and a very effective weapon. You know, used for shooting down planes, but you can shoot it down the street. You know, so. Um, I'm just chatting with this lad and we're having a smoke and we hear this kind of, you know. We're like, what the fuck is that, you know. I look behind me and there's a van here and there's just holes popping in it, you know. And then we look down the street and there's a fucking dude about 100 meters away, spraying an M16 and I going, I like bar. You know? So we all started fucking running into the, into the hospital, but it's got one of those giant double doors with the small little door in the middle. So it was only this tiny little door that one person fit through, so we're all trying to wedge into it, you know. But still being courteous, you know, ladies first, you know. Yeah. And then one of the lads pointed this douche anti aircraft thing at your man and cracked one off, put a hole in him the sides of a dinner plate and um yeah, so that, that was a bit fucked as well, you know.
0: See on that there, where where do the the Kurds get their uh their weapons from? That's a good question. Um uh
1: america would have supplied the iraqi kurds anyway you know um but yeah the syrian kurds i'm not so sure because um yeah you're never more than four inches away from an ak-47 in northern syria so
0: yeah i was actually just thinking that myself so the ak-47s have to come from russia do they? Eventually, like, well stage,
1: yeah but like they'd, they'd be all like polish chinese czech you know all the former bloc countries um but yeah, it's uh, Russian weapons, you know. Um, so the sniper rifle will be the Dragunov and the RPGs will be all... Ru- everything's Russian, yeah. Yeah. Heavy machine guns, Bixies and stuff like that, yeah. All Russian.
0: When are you heading back out there?
1: In four weeks. But I've, um, yeah, I might be going to Syria. I have to maybe look at an orphanage over there. Um, but yeah, we're just going back to focus on this um, tech program. Get that up and running.
0: It seems like you have a lot of... Different areas on the go, like with the technology and yeah, yeah, and I hardly keep control of it. Is like someone like sitting there going, right, this on this trip, this is what we're doing? Is that you? You're like, yeah, it's me, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, like our our team has kind of expanded because it's just myself and my brother, and it's
1: again for two lads who aren't getting any government funding, it's it's really hard because like we're trying to you know come up with these projects, deliver these programs um and then we're back here doing all the administration stuff for the charity regulators we're trying to you know keep our social media going um yeah organizing the events which you know so much work goes into all of that yeah so we're pretty burnt out at this moment in time so on the you scoop know.
0: team like how many people are there
1: well we have two uh ladies have just uh, gotten in touch with us uh karen and rebecca and um they're fantastic, you know, so they're just volunteering their time with us and they're just absolute machines um, we're very grateful for them and we've now got a couple of interns starting and then we're um, linking in with TUD um, to do um, our social media for us as well. So, yeah, I think just in the last couple of weeks, we've managed to go from just myself and my brother um, and a couple of volunteers who dig out at events. So, yeah, we've got about 10 to 14 people kind of coming on board now all on a voluntary basis so um, yeah we're just delighted that this is happening and
0: see I suppose as far as anyone can sort of look into the future but what is there a possible positive outcome at the end of all this or how is it going to finish or what's going to happen like or possibly happen I don't know I was at a talk in UCD and
1: it was a woman what was her name margaret wheatley i think um and yeah she was just like hope is such a bullshit word you know because i just everything that's happening it's so chaotic and you know all you can do is your best and stay true to your own mission so what my mission is is to you know enable these young people to kind of help them help themselves and um, teach them something new and um, yeah and it's it's a difficult mission to deliver, but yeah, that's kind of how I can sleep at night because I know that I'm doing my best despite all the madness and everything that's out of my power. You know, just stay true to your own mission and keep going.
0: Mm, well, that's probably a good place to to start wrapping it up. And like, I suppose that's kind of like a an interesting answer to that question because I think. Sometimes we're inclined to be like, Oh well, you know, like next this time next year, like should be sweet. Mate. That'll be it then." And uh, that's kind of like an unrealistic way of, and in a way, it's kind of a version of like just sticking her head in the sand and be like, "Oh no, I'm not gonna do anything there because it's gonna play itself out. Yeah. This time next year, it'll be sweet anyway. So there's yeah. no point in putting my efforts into it." Yeah,
1: well, like we're not expecting anyone to leave these camps anytime soon, um, you know, because Sinjar, since since the Yazidis are an ethno-religious minority, they don't have any political sway in Iraq. They're not really represented in Parliament, you know. So when Mosul was liberated, Mosul was the largest, you know, uh, Sunni majority city in the north. The place got as pummeled as Sinjar, but as soon as it was liberated, you know, billions were assigned to it in uh, reconstruction and development. Whereas Sinjar, five years, place is still in bits, you know. So um, yeah, so even if the camps miraculously did. Closed down and people did get to move back to Sinjar. It's a total tear down, rebuilding job, you know. So we'll just continue down in Sinjar once, you know, if they ever get out of the camps.
0: It's kind of a sad question, um, but just listening to you talk over the last hour, or so you've clearly like put your whole everything into this project. Like, so mm. is like, <laughs> do you still have a personal life or like, how do you look at as you do Anything yeah. for yourself and yeah. Well, I'm terribly single at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Put the call out in the podcast there if you yeah. want. <laughs> Help me. I'm a Cancerian.
1: Yeah. No, but you know, I, I keep things normal and still DJing a bit. Uh more so for financial reasons. But um but yeah, no, I'm you know, I still have a good life. I told you as well. I started fencing there and I'm kinda of loving that and taking that serious and I'm trying to get this book written as well. So, um yeah no and I have a good good network of friends around me as well so yeah.
0: I didn't know you were writing a book when is
1: that going to be coming out uh, I'm not sure now because again it's, it's a time thing I'm about halfway there so basically it's me saying fuck my life I'm going to Syria and then me going fucking nice when I got out of Syria so yeah it's like from <laughs> 2015 to end of 2016 so just this, the whole kind of 18 month period of me deciding to go and me finally getting home
0: How can people, first of all, how can people become more aware of what's happening in that part of the world?
1: Um, Well, sure. We're on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Scoop Foundation, and um, we have our site, scoopfoundation.org, and the campaign, Serious Vibes, S-Y-R-I-A-S, Vibes, is on Instagram as well. So, yeah, just whenever anything happens, or even my own personal page, you know, just give it a follow, because, yeah, I, you know, tend to follow it closely and throw my two cents in whenever I can.
0: Yeah. Here, thanks a million for taking the time yeah, to cheers. end. Fair play to for all the work you're doing. Good, keep it lit. <laughs> yeah. And uh, class, maybe we'll come back and do another one whenever the book comes out or something. Oh, but yeah. More sales now. Here, Cheers. Yeah. Go ra to Calvin for taking the time out of his day to record that chat with me. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode was supposed to come out in a few weeks' time, but I've brought it forward because of the real-time situation that's unfolding in northern Syria as we speak. So go and check out the Scoop Foundation's website. Check out Syria's vibes on the social medias and If you can, donate something to that fundraiser that they have on the go at the minute to try and make some sort of small positive change towards the living hell that is unfolding right as we speak. Um, Yeah, there's not much else that we can say, but maybe it's a good idea to share this episode around on your own social media to try and raise more awareness about what's happening out there, and I think it can become too easy to become kind of removed from situations like this just because we 're not directly affected by it, but the long and the short of it is that innocent people are being killed for no other reason than the fact that Turkey and America have made some sort of uh, deal together that is definitely going to benefit only the two of them it 's going to make the the wealthy wealthier, and it 's going to affect the people who are just on the ground going about their day-to-day lives and i think that that kind of injustice needs to be called out and stamped out uh, at every opportunity so um do whatever you can to, to try and bring a bit more awareness to the situation there and support the scoop foundation and the serious vibes project if you're in a position to do so And thanks very much for taking the time yourself to listen to this podcast and for supporting the Rebel Matters podcast. We're going to be back next week with another episode. And as we have been doing over the last number of weeks, there is a little bit of raw dial coming after the outro music. So stay on tuned in to that if you want a little bit of a kind of bedtime reading. And as usual, support the podcast by sharing it on your social media and go to iTunes and give it a wee rating and review. And get in touch if you have any questions. Acha kajin katerala a hard skill. Can you fire August? Chucky Arla August Slangafoil. Welcome to the After Party at CardiGale. This chapter from the book Boy Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl is called A Visit to the Doctor. I'm just sitting here with a fresh and warm cup of coffee. Getting ready to do a wee bit of reading for you. And as I've mentioned before, this is the first time that I'm reading this book as well, so we're kind of getting through it together. If you are up for it just sit back and have a wee listen I've got a bit of a cold at the minute as well so I might interrupt a couple of times to do a wee cough but uh, hopefully that's okay. anyway here we go I have only one unpleasant memory of the summer holidays in Norway where we we were in grandparents house in Oslo and my mother said to me we're going to the doctor this afternoon he wants to have a look at your nose and mouth I think I was 8 at the time What's wrong with my nose and mouth? I asked. Nothing much, my mother said, but I think you've got adenoids. What are they? I asked her. Don't worry about it, she said, it's nothing. I held my mother's hand as we walked to the doctor's house. It took us half an hour. There was a kind of dentist chair in the surgery and I was lifted into it. The doctor had a round mirror strapped to his forehead and he peered up my nose and into my mouth. He then took my mother aside and they whispered a conversation. I saw my mother looking rather grim but she nodded the doctor and I put some water to boil in an aluminium mug over a gas flame and into the boiling water he placed a long thin shiny steel instrument I sat there watching the steam coming off the boiling water I was not in the least apprehensive I was too young to realise that something out of the ordinary was going to happen then a nurse dressed in white came in she was carrying a red rubber apron and a curved white enamel bowl She put the apron over the front of my body and tied it around my neck. It was far too big. Then she held the enamel bowl under my chin. The curve of the bowl fitted perfectly against the curve of my chest. The doctor was bending over me. In his hand he held that long shiny steel instrument. He held it right in front of my face and to this day I can still describe it perfectly. It was about the thickness and length of a pencil. And like most pencils it had a lot of sides to it. Towards the end the metal became much thinner and at the very end of the thin bit of metal there was a tiny blade set at an angle. The blade wasn't more than a centimetre long, very small, very sharp and very shiny. Open your mouth the doctor said, speaking Norwegian. I refused. I thought he was going to do something to my teeth and everything anyone had ever done to my teeth had been painful. It won't take two seconds, the doctor said. He spoke gently, and I was seduced by his voice. Like an ass, I opened my mouth. The tiny blade flashed in the bright light and disappeared into my mouth. It went high up into the roof of my mouth, and the hand that held the blade gave four or five very quick little twists, and the next moment out of my mouth into the basin came tumbling a whole mass of flesh and blood. I was too shocked and outraged to do anything but yelp, I was horrified by the huge red lumps that had fallen out of my mouth into the white basin and my first thought was that the doctor had cut out the whole of the middle of my head. Those were your adenoids, I heard the doctor saying. I sat there gasping. The roof of my mouth seemed to be on fire. I grabbed my mother's hand and held onto it tight. I couldn't believe that anyone would do this to me. Stay where you are, the doctor said. You'll be alright in a minute. Blood was still coming out of my mouth and dripping into the basin the nurse was holding. Spit it all out, she said. There's a good boy. You'll be able to breathe much better through your nose after this, the doctor said. The nurse wiped my lips and washed my face with a wet flannel, then lifted me out of the chair and stood me on my feet. I felt a bit groggy. We'll get you home, my mother said, taking my hand. Down the stairs we went and onto the street. We started walking. I said, walking? Walking? No trolley car or taxi. We walked the full half hour journey back to my grandparents' house and when we arrived at last I can remember as clearly as anything my grandmother saying let him sit down in the chair and rest for a while. After all, he's had an operation. Someone placed a chair for me beside my grandmother's armchair and I sat down. My grandmother reached over and covered one of my hands in both of hers. That won't be the last time you'll go to the doctor in your life she said and with a bit of luck they won't do much they won't do you too much harm that was in 1924 and taking out a child's adenoids and often the tonsils as well without any anesthetic was common practice in those days i wonder though what you would think if some doctor did that to you today st. peters 1925 to 1929 age 9 to 13 first day in september nineteen twenty five, when I was just nine, I set out on the first great adventure of my life, boarding school. My mother had chosen for me a prep school in a part of England which was as near as it could possibly be to our home in South Wales, and it was called St. Peter's. The first the full postal address was St. Peter's School Weston Supper Mar Somerset. Weston Supper Western Supermar is a slightly seedy seaside resort, with a vast sandy beach, a tremendous long pier, an esplanade running along the seafront, a clutter of hotels and boarding houses, and about ten thousand little shops selling buckets and spades and sticks of rocks and ice creams. It lies almost directly across the Bristol Channel from Cardiff, and on a clear day, you can stand on the esplanade. At Weston, and look across the 15 or so miles of water and see the coast of Wales lying pale and milky on the horizon. In those days, the easiest way to travel from Cardiff to Weston Supermar was by boat. The, those boats were beautiful. They were paddle steamers with gigantic swishing paddle wheels on their flanks, and the wheels made the most terrific noise as they slushed and churned through the water. On the first day of my first term, I set out by taxi in the afternoon with my mother to catch with my mother to catch the paddle steamer from Cardiff Docks to Weston Supermore. Every piece of clothing clothing I wore was brand new and had my name on it. I wore black shoes, gray woollen stockings with blue turnovers, gray flannel shorts, a gray shirt, a red tie, a gray flannel blazer, with the blue school crest on the breast pocket and a grey school cap with the same crest just above the peak. Into the taxi that was taking us to the docks went my brand new trunk and my brand new tuck box and both had our doll printed on them in black. A tuck box is a small pine wood trunk which is very strongly made and no boy has ever gone as a boarder to an English prep school without one. In it, It is his own secret storehouse, as secret as a lady's handbag, and there's an unwritten law that no other boy, no teacher, not even the headmaster himself has the right to pry into the contents of your tuck box. The owner has the key in his pocket, and that is where it stays. At St Peter's, the tuck boxes were ranged shoulder to shoulder all around the four walls of the changing room, and and your own tuck box stood directly below the peg on which you hung your game clothes. A tuck box, as the name implies, is a box in which you store your tuck. At prep school in those days, a parcel of tuck was sent once a week by anxious mothers to their ravenous little sons. And on average, and an average tuck box would probably contain, at almost any time, half a homemade currant cake, a packet of squashed fly biscuits, a couple of oranges, an apple, a banana, a pot of strawberry jam or marmite, a pot, a bar of chocolate, a bag of licorice all sorts and a tin of Bassett's lemonade powder. An English school in those days was purely a money-making business, owned and operated by the headmaster. It suited him, therefore, to give the boys as little food as possible himself and to encourage the parents in various cunning ways to feed their offspring by parcel posts from home. By all means, my dear Mrs Dahl, do send your boy some little treats now and again, he would say, perhaps a few oranges and apples once a week fruit was very expensive, and a nice currant cake, a large currant cake perhaps, because small boys have large appetites, do they not? (laughs) Ha ha ha. Yes, yes, as often as you like, more than once a week if you wish. Of course he'll be getting plenty of food here, the best there is, but it never tastes quite the same as home cooking, does it? I'm sure you wouldn't want him to be the only one who doesn't get a lovely parcel from home every week. As well as tuck, a tuck box would also contain all manner of treasures such as magnets, a pocket knife, a compass, a ball of string, a clockwork racing car, half a dozen lead soldiers, a box of conjuring tricks, some tiddlywinks, a Mexican jumping bean, a catapult, some foreign stamps, a couple of stink bombs and I remember one boy called Arkel who drilled an air hole in the lid of his tuck box and kept a pet frog in there which he fed on slugs. So off we set, my mother and I, and my trunk and my tuck box, and we boarded the paddle steamer and went swishing across the Bristol Channel in a shower of spray. I liked that part of it, but I began to grow apprehensive as I disembarked on the pier at Weston Supermar and watched my trunk and tuck box being loaded into an English taxi which would drive us to St Peter's. I had absolutely no idea what was in store for me. I had never spent a single night away from our large family before. St Peter's was on a hill above the town. It was a long three-storey stone building that looked rather like a private lunatic asylum and in front of it lay the playfields with their three football pitches. One third of the building was re- reserved for the headmaster and his family. The rest of it housed the boys, about 150 of them altogether, if I remember rightly. As we got out of the taxis, I saw the whole driveway, a bustle, with small boys As we got out of the taxi, I saw the whole driveway, a bustle with small boys and their parents and their trunks and their tuck boxes. And a man I took to be the headmaster was swimming around among them, shaking everybody by the hand. I have already told you that all headmasters are giants, and this one was no exception. He advanced upon my mother and shook her by the hand. Then he shook me by the hand, and as he did so, he gave me the kind of flashing grin a shark might give to a small fish just before he gobbles it up. One of his front front teeth, I noticed, was edged all the way around with gold and his hair was slicked down with so much hair cream that it glistened like butter. Right, he said to me, off you go and report to the matron. And to my mother, he said briskly, goodbye Mrs. Dahl. I shouldn't linger. If I were you, we'll look after him. My mother got the message. She kissed me on the cheek and said goodbye and climbed right back into the taxi. The headmaster moved away to another group and I was left standing there beside my brand new trunk and my brand new tuck box. I began to cry. Writing Home At St Peter's, Sunday morning was letter letter writing time. At nine o'clock the whole school had to go to their desks and spend one hour writing a letter home to their parents. At 10.15 we put on our caps and coats and formed up outside the school in a long crocodile and marched a couple of miles down to Weston Supermere for church and we didn't get back until lunchtime. Church going never became a habit with me. Letter writing did. Here is the very first letter I wrote from St Peter's. Dear Mama, I am having a lovely time here. We play football every day here. She. Something, I can't actually read this because it's in handwriting. Will you send my stuff, my stamp album, and quite a lot of toys? The masters are very nice. I've got all my clothes now, and a belt, and ties, and school. Jumper, love from boy. From that very first Sunday at St. Peter's until the day my mother died, 32 years later, I wrote to her once a week, sometimes more often, whenever I was away from home. I wrote to her every week from St. Peter's, I had to, and every week from my next school, Repton, and every week from Dar es Salaam in East Africa where I went on my first job after leaving school and then every week during the war from Kenya and Iraq and Egypt when I was flying with the RAF. My mother, for her part, kept every one of these letters, binding them carefully in neat bundles with green tape. But this was was her own secret. She never told me she was doing it. In 1967, when she knew she was dying, I was in hospital in Oxford having, having a serious operation on my spine and I was unable to write to her. So she had a telephone specially installed beside her bed in order that she might have one last conversation with me. She didn't tell me she was dying nor did anyone else for that nor did nor did anyone else for that matter because I was in a fairly serious condition myself at the time. She simply asked me how I was and hoped I would get better soon and sent me her love. I had no idea that she would die the next day, but she knew all right, and she wanted to reach out and speak to me for the last time. When I recovered and went home, I was given this vast collection of all my letters, all so neatly bound with green tape, more than 600 of them altogether, dating from 1925 to 1945, each one in its original envelope with the old stamps still on them. I am awfully lucky to have something that us to refer to in my old age. Letter writing was a serious business at St Peter's. It was as much a lesson in spelling and punctuation as anything else because the headmaster would patrol the classrooms all through the sessions, peering over our shoulders to read what we were writing and to point out our mistakes. But that, I am quite sure, was not the main reason for his interest. He was there to make sure that we said nothing horrid about his school. There was no way, therefore, that we could ever complain to our parents about anything during term time. If we thought the food was lousy, or if we hated a certain master, or if we had been thrashed for something we did not do, we never dared to say so in our letters. In fact, we often went the other way. In order to please that dangerous headmaster who was leaning over our shoulders and reading what we had written, we would say splendid things about the school and go on about how lovely the masters were. Mind you, the headmaster was a clever fellow. He did not want our parents to think that those letters of ours were censored in this way, and therefore he never allowed us to correct the spelling mistake in the letter itself. If, for example, I had written, last Tuesday night we had a lecture, he would say, don't you know how to spell night? Uh, Yes, sir. K-N-I-G-H-T. That's the other kind of night, you idiot. Which kind, sir? I don't understand. That's the one in shining armour. The man on horseback. How do you spell Tuesday night? Um, I'm not quite sure, sir. It's N-I-G-H-T, boy. N-I-G-H-T. Stay in and write it out for me 50 times this afternoon. No, no, don't change it in the letter. You don't want to make it any messier than it is. It must go as you wrote it. Thus, the unsuspecting parents received in this subtle way the impression that your letter had never been seen nor censored or corrected by anyone.